Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Many of you know Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We do this show together every week, trying to provide information, updates, and help for caregivers everywhere. What a great idea. I'm just thinking all that we've learned, you know, every Amazing. week, every week, somebody just surprises me. And last week, talking with a guy who spent four days in a dementia unit, a filmmaker. That's right. And we're going to continue talking about dementia this week. We have a guest on who is going to be talking about her organization, Women Against Alzheimer's, Jill Lesser, who uh, was a mom raising school-age kids and caring for her mother who had uh, dementia. We'll talk with her later. Right, and and dementia actually is a woman's issue. There are more women get dementia than men. Significantly more women get dementia than men. And why is that? And I'm not sure we're going to get behind the science, but it's a big issue because the women are the caregivers many right. times as well. Right, and so they're on both sides of that one. Right. That's amazing. So before we talk to Jill, I'm, I'm curious, as you take a look at uh, how we learn stuff and how far back you go. You came across information that we are learning from the Middle Ages. Well, this is from CBS News, and, and some of you may have seen it. But we, right now there are superbugs, right, that are resistant to the antibiotics that we use here in modern times. So some researcher was looking in a 10th century, yes, that's 10th century, which means we're talking the 900s uh, year, the year 900 and something, in a, in a medical book, such as it was in 967, and found a concoction that had garlic, uh, bile from a cow's stomach, and... Um, there was oh, and leeks and onions, something from the onion family or leek family, and you mix it up, and guess what? It kills superbugs like MRSA. Wow. So yeah, that is kind of a, amazing. Another amazing fact, um, and MRSA is like one of the most dangerous uh, infections that people can get that stay in hospitals. It kills twenty three thousand people a year, makes two million people a year sick, and you pick it up usually from a hospital when things haven't been cleaned well, uh, and they said the regular antibiotics don't treat them. So, wow. so Scary. Those home remedies, you know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of research that was done, and people understood what plants they could mix. I mean, the Native Americans, apparently people in castles in the Middle Ages, also had an understanding of, of things that worked. Maybe they didn't know scientifically why it worked, but... They knew these things had properties, and they mixed them up. And so they're going to be presenting this paper um, at the Society for General Microbiology, so stay tuned. You know, it may be that we just got to get a little cow bile and some garlic and mix a few things up, and we'll have superbug killers. It's like an opening scene in a Shakespeare play where they're stirring the cauldron. Well, you know, and, and leeks, you know, have come back. It's been a long time, but there was an article, oh, it's been a few years now, where they are finding that because... 
not did I say leaks? Leeches. Said, I said leeches oh, are coming. Leeches. leeches, sorry. Leeches are being used in some medical treatments because a leech, as it's, as it, you know, sucks your blood, it also, because it doesn't want you to know it's doing that, it also has some, you know, properties where it kind of numbs it and heals it and, and, and it actually has some modern benefits to it as well in terms of healing some wounds that you don't want to use stitches. So weird but wacky things. 1700s, we did leeches in this country. The 1700s and the 1700s were right. good years for medicine. So I wonder if there are leech farms now. I don't, I don't <laughs> I know. No I'm not. I'm not going to volunteer to start one of those. I, you know, I That's... know it doesn't require a lot of acreage, but no, thank you. Wow. Well, moving right along, uh, if you take a look at people who uh, run the risk of subdural. Hematomas. It what turns did you out, say? Subdural I what said what? subdural <laughs> hematomas. Kind of blood down there deep under the skin. Yeah, that's where you bump your head and it bleeds between in you know, the space between your brain and your actually your skull. Which is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And the and the bad thing is as we get older our brains shrink and it creates more space, more room to bleed. Mm. Um but why would we want to talk about subdural hematoma? Because that's so hard to say. And it's on the rise. On the show, it's on the rise. A lot of older adults um, develop the condition, and they don't even know it. You can actually develop it. For, you know how you bang your head on the corner of the car door or the closet door, and it really, really hurts? And you don't really think about it. You don't even realize that you hit your head. Well, as you're older, that may be enough to cause a subdural hematoma. And the problem is, is that they call this the great neurological imitator, which means you could have banged your head, you could have a subdural hematoma, some bleeding in your head, and the symptoms look like a psychiatric disorder, it looks like dementia, it looks like a migraine, epilepsy, Parkinson's, a stroke, a mini stroke. So you could go to the doctor and they would assume that you have all of these other horrible things if you don't tell them that somewhere in the, you know, last month you bumped your head. And it can real and a CT scan will show that you actually have bleeding. I banged my head on the automatic lift gate on our SUV the other day. I I banged my head in the bathroom once and knocked myself out just trying to pick up the trash can. But that's a, one of those graceful things that you do. Don't ask. <laughs> uh, but so the home is a very dangerous thing. So the warning signs include a headache, a change in mental status. So this is something that's going to happen quickly. Like a stroke, you wake up one day, one side of your face, one part of your body isn't working well, something's going on with your brain, you need to get to the doctor very quickly. Um, in most cases, the blood is absorbed, reabsorbed, and they don't even need to treat it. But sometimes surgery is required, they need to drain that area, because if they don't, it can cause big problems, including death. Um, but just to know, I mean, I, I, we don't go around talking about subdural hematoma. We don't talk about those minor bumps of the head. And particularly for those people, you know, I think people on blood thinners like Coumadin are warned about, right. you know, bleeding issues. But most of us don't think about it. If you're caring for an older adult um, and they do have a sudden change in their, you know, their, their functioning, their mental functioning, it's, it happens suddenly. That's always a warning. You never get Alzheimer's overnight. You don't develop dementia in a day or two. Something else is going on. Um, and if someone has bumped their head, you do need to get it looked at. That's important to remember because we do hear that from time to time. Uh, and we've had people here who, who have said that, you know, grandma came down with uh, dementia overnight. 
But it wasn't. Yeah, it was, and it wasn't. Or they've had a fall, but they didn't hit their head when they fell. But your brain still goes bang, bang against the inside of your right. head when you, you know, move it around very quickly. And that can also cause the subdural hematoma as well. Shaken baby syndrome in adults. Absolutely. Wow. We're strange. So if you, memo to self, if you bumped your head, Remember and tell your doctor. <laughs> to try to remember. Tell your doctor. Oh, hang on to that thought. Now, here's good news. We've dealt with a lot of bad news today. Uh, what are the best cities for successfully aging? Well, this is a new list, and this came out from Richard Eisenberg, who writes for Forbes magazine, and I'm going to give a shout-out to him. I had the opportunity to speak with him in Chicago uh, several weeks ago at the Aging Conference. We were talking about senior centers and were they something that should go away or stay, and, of course, we run senior centers and think that they're wonderful, active, vibrant places and are sorry that he visited one that was so awful. Oh, his, colleague, oh. his colleague oh. saw one that was so awful. But this list is, is different than 10 best places to retire because it's best places for successful aging, which means that there is culture, that there's good health care, that there um, are things to do, so that there's physical activity, you can get out and walk or exercise. So it's a little bit different requirements. Uh, they divided it into big cities and small cities. So top 10 big cities. Number one, Madison, Wisconsin. If you don't like snow, you might want to pick a different one. But Madison, Wisconsin is on the top really? of the list. Yeah, so it's Madison, Wisconsin. Well, they have great social services in Wisconsin. They do. Um, at Omaha, Nebraska is number two. Out Omaha, there. Nebraska? Omaha, Nebraska. Provo, wow. Utah. Salt Lake City, Utah. Huh. Boston, Massachusetts. Jackson, Mississippi. Des Moines, Iowa. Toledo, Ohio. Austin, Texas, close to us. And Bridgeport, Connecticut. We're not on that list? San Antonio's not on the list. Huh. Austin is. Uh, it must be that Keep Austin Weird is good for aging. Yeah, it's all it's all marketing. It's, it's all marketing? It's all marketing you for think Austin. It's all, for Austin, you think oh, it's yeah. marketing? Yeah. What about for um, Omaha, Nebraska? Are they marketing, too? No, it must be true for <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the yeah. big cities. Would you like to hear the small towns? Sure. Or smaller, small cities? Yeah. Iowa City, Iowa. Which I've never been to. Have you ever been to Iowa? City, no, but I Iowa? guarantee you, Hillary Clinton and every Republican, every Republican candidate will be there. there. Okay, Sioux Falls, North Dakota, Columbia, Missouri, Bismarck, North Dakota, Rapid City, South Dakota, Ames, Iowa, another place for the political. I was to big go. on this. Rochester, Minnesota. Ann Arbor, Michigan, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Fargo, North Dakota. Are you noticing anything on these two lists? Yeah, they're all north. They're all north. None of these are the retirement areas. There's Except no North Austin. Carolina. There's no Florida. There's one Texas city. There's no California because they don't have water. Right. Um, so it's really kind of interesting. All the great places to successfully age. You know, there are, there's also research, which I cannot quote you the source, that people in cold climates do age better. Really? Yes. So maybe that goes to this list, you know, because I think maybe all that shoveling snow is not as bad for you as we think. Or better for your skin. Or maybe it's good for your skin, but I just I think know. it's more fun than heat, but that's me. Got time for one more. And one of the things that, uh, you know, when it comes to health data, there's a, a theory afoot that you ought to know more about yourself. Right. The more you know, the better. And Mark Cuban of the... Uh, team that plays up north in Dallas, the Mavericks, 
uh, has advocated, if you got the money, you ought to every quarter get a complete blood analysis. That's right. So this was actually, there was an article, there was some talk on a variety of radio stations in the last couple of weeks about the data. And you know, this is something my father would has already said. Just don't go to the doctor unless you have to. Um, and, and actually, I think there would be a lot of doctors that would agree with that as well. Yeah. The problem with getting uh, getting baseline health data, blood tests every quarter, even an annual physical is starting to lose popularity in, in some medical circles, is you're more likely to find something. And it doesn't, you know, the you, doesn't mean that something is going to go horribly wrong and you're going to die of something. So the more data, the more increase of false positives, the more invasive tests, the more invasive tests, the more side effects, the more likely something can go wrong, the more likely you're going to have something horrible happen to you just because you've had more data. Wow. It's a vicious cycle. So ignorance is bliss. Um, unless something's wrong. If you notice something unusual, get it checked out. If you don't, sometimes not knowing may actually be better. Now we're going to talk with Jill Lesser, founder of Women Against Alzheimer's, in just a couple of moments. And Carol has to go do a TV show, so you're going to have to leave our studio. That's right. I'm multimedia today. You and are. I apologize that I cannot stay for the interview, but I'm be interested to hear Jill on caregiversos.org when I play it back on the podcast. Good plug. We're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. And I'm Carol Zerniel. You know, Carol, the experts agree exercise is critical to our health and wellness, and that's especially true if you or someone you know is a senior. So in the spirit of doing what's good for us, please join us at the 2015 Run for Seniors, sponsored by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And our honorary chair this year, Bear County's newly elected District Attorney, Nico LaHood. The race kicks off at 8 a.m. Saturday, May 2nd at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex. Registration, just $25 per person if registering online through April 30th at wellmetgives.org, $30 on race day. And we have a special deal if you don't like getting up in the morning. You can be a sleepwalker for $25 registration and stay at home while still supporting our seniors. Seniors 60 and over and children 10 and under run or walk for free. All the money raised will support seniors in need. So join us at 8 a.m. Saturday, May 2nd at Wheatley Heights Sports Complex. And for registration information, go to wellmedgives.org. That's wellmedgives.org, and we'll see you at the run. Well, we are so pleased you are with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer podcast of all of our shows are available at caregiversos.org. And we encourage you to download them, listen to them, share them with friends and neighbors. We have covered uh, literally hundreds of topics since we started doing Caregiver SOS On Air. And we've got a great guest joining us right now. Uh, Jill Lesser is founder of Women Against Alzheimer's. And we're delighted, Jill, to have you on. And Carol Zerniel asked me to... uh, Give you her regrets. She had to go do a, she's involved in a TV telethon and had to leave the studio, but she's here in spirit. Sounds great. So how are you? I'm great. Thank you. You end up as a, as a mom, you got kids, kids are in school, and you're also providing care for your mother uh, who had uh, Alzheimer's disease. Talk about uh, either super mom or taking too much on. Well, I think, you know, you, you have to take what they give you. Uh, and so um, I am blessed with a lot of things in my life. Um, three 
uh, great active sons um, and a busy husband, and now I'm also blessed with taking care of my mom, which has, um, you know, is not the way I expected to spend this part of my life, but I am uh, certainly honored to do it given the situation that she's in. Yeah, it's interesting because there's no organization women for Alzheimer's, obviously, but if you take a look at uh, the number of Alzheimer's patients who've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, and you look at who the caregivers are, uh, and and the vast majority on both sides of that are women. That's right. And, you know, one of the reasons why we, um, under the auspices of Us Against Alzheimer's, which is our parent organization, why we formed Women Against Alzheimer's is because it is just that. It really is a women's disease, um, and it is one that I believe, uh, not only from my personal experience, but from um, understanding the statistics and the trends in the disease, you know, is going to be a major, um, have a major impact on women's lives in the next generation. And, and you know, as much, if not more, than um, some of the other diseases that we think of as women's diseases because women are the patients. Um, but, you know, this disease affects women uh, not only as patients, but um, often for decades as caregivers. And as we know, that can be debilitating in its own right. Yes. If you take a look at what's being done now in the category of research, if you take a look at uh, the kind of investment that National Institutes of Health and Congress are, are making, uh, there really is no war on Alzheimer's that I can see. No, there really isn't. Um, the you know the funding is is woefully inadequate. Um, in fact, that doesn't even really even begin to cover it. Um, I think it is uh, challenging both because of the lack of investment, also because of how difficult finding a cure for this disease is, because of the need to do so much basic science, because of how difficult it is to get um, subjects for clinical trials. Um, one of the things that we're finding more and more is that clinical trial recruitment uh, for a disease like Alzheimer's, where a lot of the studies are being done on women who are pre-symptomatic, um, is one of the biggest problems. And so, uh, you know, there needs to be a huge amount of work done in terms of awareness building. I mean, we have seen over the past year uh, with something popular like Still Alice at the Academy Awards, that there is an awareness of the disease, but awareness has to be turned into action and investment. In fact, uh, in really very direct language, your organization says we really need to mobilize the necessary resources and systems to reform and accelerate laboratory discoveries to those with Alzheimer's. What are we doing and what more needs to be done? Well, I mean, certainly there are efforts at the National Institute of Aging, at the National Institutes of Health. Um, there are many companies and, and academic researchers that are beginning to invest in this disease. But what I think we need to do is really not think of uh, science as usual in this context. We know from um, emergent situations with other diseases that uh, waiting the normal course of action when you have um, an onslaught, like an oncoming tsunami, um, you have to find ways to share information, pool information, 
um, reach into communities to get people to volunteer for uh, uh, research, to become research subjects, to undergo the testing. Um, we, we really haven't penetrated into the American psyche in terms of what they can do. And as you said at the outset, um, we haven't seen the government step up with the requisite amount of funding to be able to really get that basic research done and take this to the next level. I mean, we know that if we compare the investment, federal government investment, to other diseases, um, Alzheimer's, while it impacts a far greater number of patients and caregivers, um, has uh, just a fraction of the funding that we see for many different kinds of cancer, for heart disease, for diabetes, and the like. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Jill Lesser, who is the founder of Women Against Alzheimer's. We're talking about mounting a uh, uh, a real national effort uh, to attack this disease and find answers. I'm Ron Aaron. We are Caregiver SOS on air. Carol Zerniel, our partner in crime, our co-host, uh, had to depart and is part of a telethon that is taking place today on a totally different subject. Uh, but uh, it was a responsibility and a commitment that she had made, and we had apologized to Jill, but we will certainly carry on uh, in this situation. You're on 9.30 a.m., The Answer, by the way, if you have just joined us. And Jill Lesser, uh, what will it take to get this mobilization going? If you take a look, for example, uh, at Congress, uh, you know, the average age of members of Congress is uh, 60-some years old. These are not young people. Many of them must have family members who have been struggling with dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, hasn't it gotten their attention? Yes. In fact, uh, I mean, not only because of the average age of members of Congress, but also because, as we know, um, you know, this disease affects, uh, you know, many generations in a family. And we are finding more and more as we, uh, you know, knock on the doors of, of members of Congress and senators and other uh, policymakers and elected officials that we really don't find anyone anymore who hasn't been affected by this disease in some way, whether it's a close family member, a distant relative, a close friend, a neighbor, I mean, it is really everywhere as the population ages. And so, absolutely, we are finding um, much more of the psychic commitment uh, to dealing with the disease. But, um, as we all know, there are many, many demands on members of Congress and the federal government. And what we're not finding yet is an outcry, uh, a mobilized outcry from people around the country really saying, you know, this is the issue I care about. This is what I'm going to vote on. You need to stand up and um, fight for this research. Members obviously respond to the demands more than anything of their constituents. So we are certainly seeing um, an emotional trend, and we're, we're, we're finding more and more people who are admitting that this is in their, uh, you know, in their family, in their, in their friend group. Um, it has not yet, uh, there isn't yet a sense of urgency that I'm feeling right. in Washington, and, and that is what we're trying to uh, change. You use an interesting choice of words. Uh, uh, you're finding more and more people now who are, who are admitting that Alzheimer's has touched their family. Uh, for the longest time, you kept it a secret. 
Yes, and I think that has been one of the major changes over the last several years. I mean, if you hearken back to um, even the uh, discussion around President Reagan having had uh, Alzheimer's, it was a very hushed conversation. There was a lot of embarrassment around it uh, or perceived embarrassment around it about somehow having a disease like this would, would tarnish his legacy or his or you know people's memory of him. And I think what we're finding more and more uh, is that um, there's a recognition that this is not a normal aging process, that, you know, 50 years ago when someone said, oh, yes, you know, my grandmother lives with me and she's senile, that that might have been a, uh, you know, another way of saying uh, that that person had Alzheimer's. But we are seeing a shift. We are not, however, necessarily seeing that shift in some um, communities that seem to be affected more directly, like African American and Latino communities, uh, for whom culturally uh, some of that stigma, um, for a variety of reasons, continues to, to be palpable um, in the Latino community, where there's a history of, um, you know, caring for multi generations. Um, uh, something that I think, you know, in, in much of America, we've we've let slide. Uh, you know, there is less of a, uh, uh, a proclivity to go and get a diagnosis. And so in addition to our women's network, Us Against Alzheimer's has an African-American network and a Latino network, Latino Against Alzheimer's. And we are, um, when we do our big summit in the fall, going to bring all of our networks mm. together so that we're addressing the different and unique challenges um, in getting this disease, what, what we are now saying, out of the shadows um, in a variety of different communities. Well, Jill Lesser, stay with me just a minute. Uh, we're going to do a little news at our end. Uh, you will fall into the Maxwell Smart Cone of Silence, 99, but you will still be with us, so don't go anywhere. After the news, we'll come right back to you, and that should happen in just a couple of moments. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Carol Zerniel is off on special assignment, and we are talking with Jill Lesser, founder of Women Against Alzheimer's. listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the Wellman Charitable Foundation on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is on special assignment at a TV telethon, and we are trying to carry on in her absence, but she is very much with us, of course, in spirit. Uh, talking with Jill Lesser, who is the uh, founder of an organization that is trying to mobilize people across this country to take serious and do something even more about Alzheimer's disease. She's the founder of Women Against Alzheimer's. And uh, Jill Lesser, when we were talking just a couple of moments ago about uh, members of Congress reaching across uh, and having them self-identify, because so many probably have in their families somewhere someone with Alzheimer's, and as they age, uh, members of Congress uh, run the risk because the increased uh, risk of Alzheimer's does grow with age. Uh, they have to be aware of it, don't you think? Yes, I, I, I think that um, it, it's hard to find 
people today um, who are not aware of the disease and uh, who have not been touched by it in, in some way. Um, and, and I think, as you've alluded to, as we see, um, you know, an aging population, uh, you know, we see, we know the baby boomers are now over 65 and are turning 65 every day, um, that the sheer volume of people, the number of people um, over a certain age who are not the only victims of Alzheimer's, but certainly uh, the vast majority, um, we're going to see more and more uh, people who are direct in power, who are policymakers, um, who are who are directly affected by the disease. And uh, in order to make that happen, uh, you need to flood Capitol Hill and congressional districts uh, with people who can carry that message to senior staff and to members themselves. Yes, and I think one of the things that we are working on, um, and I alluded to this before when we think about bringing the disease out of the shadows, one of the things that is unique about Alzheimer's, and I think one of the reasons why it's been very hard to um, have the lobbying impact, um, even just for constituents and members of Congress, is that this is the one disease where victims really can't speak for themselves. I mean, it's certainly not the only disease, but it is a disease where um, it is very rare. It is, it is only um, people in the very early stages of the disease who sometimes speak for themselves. Um, and so there is a, uh, it, there's a difficulty. Um, caregivers are overwhelmed. Uh, they are uh, focused on day-to-day survival, right. um, and the combination of the two means that humanizing the impact of the disease is very difficult as people are going through it. It is so heart-wrenching, um, both as a victim as a caregiver, that it is it is a diff- you know you have to essentially communicate with members of Congress in, in a different way. Talk to us a bit about your own experience. We, we started out in introducing you, uh, three uh, uh, wonderful boys, school age, uh, and, and a mom with Alzheimer's, and, and you, like many, found yourself in a caregiver role. Uh, how did that happen, and what was that like for you? Well, as I think most people who've gone through this would acknowledge, you know, the, the hardest part is uh, the beginning. Uh, it's, a, it's a time of confusion, um, it is a diff- it has historically been and I think continues to be a disease that um, is difficult to diagnose. Um, it is a, certainly a disease where the victim doesn't want to um, admit that there are issues and even if they do, they certainly um, there's a lot of fighting about loss of control. Um, for me, I, um, had to have some very, very difficult interactions with my mother in order to make decisions that I thought would keep her safe um, and and give her the care she needed. Uh, it was very, very difficult for her. Uh, she grew up in uh, Manhattan her entire life. She was incredibly independent, um, incredibly active, um, very, you know, she had a, a long career uh, that was actually bifurcated. She had a career in computer programming and banking, and then uh, for the last 10 years before she was diagnosed, she was a playwright. Um, So this was a woman for whom, um, you know, her her memory, her ability to um, 
figure out complex problems was really at the core of her identity. Um, and, and it was in some ways rare for a woman of, of her generation. So it, the beginning was very, very tough. I will say, um, you know, I managed beginning parts long distance, which as anybody, any of your listeners who tried to do that with a, a you know, with a, a child who isn't in the same city, as a parent suffering, it is very, very difficult, um, both from a time perspective and emotionally, to try to manage something long distance. I will say the one area um, in my uh, situation that I never, ever take for granted, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about trying to find a, a cure for this disease, is that, you know, I have, am lucky enough to have the means to, to have outside help for my mother, um, I am not doing this all by myself. And um, I think millions of Americans, I would posit that the vast majority of people who are dealing with this disease, both in this country and globally, do not have the resources to get the kind of help they need. Um, many caregivers are themselves uh, in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and you know, so I, I think when when I think about my experience, you know, I I have the relief. So when I get to the end of my rope, um, I have people helping me who give me the relief and who who care for my mother daily. And who you know, if I can't attend to her because I'm attending to my children on a particular day, who can uh, you know, meet her needs. And, and that is something that I think um, is a conversation that we're really not having at all in this country, the different experiences that you have if you have resources and if you don't. Um, and I would say that we certainly have that kind of conversation and, and have over the past several years at the national level about, about health care and health coverage, but I think it's important to remember that unless you have an attendant medical uh, condition that requires medical care that's covered by health insurance, even if you have it, most of the kind of care we're talking about, the day-to-day needs, feeding, bathing, changing, um, you know, keeping safe, none of that is covered by anybody's health insurance plan. And, uh, and in, in just so, a moment, we'll talk about an, a, a growing problem of a shortage of caregivers over time. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron. We're on 930 AM. The answer, Carol Zerniel on special assignment uh, this afternoon, and we're talking with Jill Lesser, founder of Women Against Alzheimer's. Uh, the, the figures are astounding. Within the next uh, not too many years, we're going to run out of familial caregivers. So who's going to provide the care? Where's that going to come from? I mean, absolutely. You know, I think that that, uh, you know, you're raising all of the most difficult questions um, that we are facing in this country. And I, I think that, you know, uh, a cure or a treatment for the disease is at the top of, of many of our lists and certainly finding the resources we need to find that cure. But the question of the next five to ten years when I think we don't necessarily believe that we will have a cure, um, how are we going to care for this population? How are we going to um, save 
the familial caregivers, um, many right. of whom are, you know, particularly in the case of women, leaving the workforce. You know, for many, many years, for many decades, we've had women entering the workforce, um, you know, making gains in terms of their, uh, uh, you know, uh, ability to earn, be wage earners and support their families. And now what we're finding is, those same women are having to leave the workforce in the peak of their careers. So, you know, that too um, is a critical problem. And I do think there are way those kinds of problems are the kind are are also problems that we should be talking to our elected representatives about. Well, and the finances are uh, uh, extraordinarily harmful to families when uh, she has to give up that job that uh, uh, may have been bringing in a very nice income, but she can't do it anymore. Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, and, you know, I think we we should not um, assume at all that when we think about women entering the workforce and families having two wage earners, that that is by choice. I mean, that is by necessity. And so, uh, you know, when you're picking a a wage earner um, in, in today's expensive environment out of the family that, um, you know, that ripple effect uh, beyond the person suffering with Alzheimer's is extraordinary. Are, so are you optimistic? I mean, what we've really been talking about, uh, Jill Lesser, is a huge downer. Yeah, you know, I am optimistic. I am, I am heartened by what I see is a is an increased attention to this disease? Um, is it infiltrating, you know, popular culture? I was just saying that you know, every time I turn on a movie or a TV program, there seems to be a storyline that has something to do with Alzheimer's, and I think that's a good sign. But I, I think our work is just beginning. I mean, that's why we formed Women Against Alzheimer's. That's why we're... Um, you know, we've launched our Out of the Shadows campaign. That's why we're trying to give voice to caregivers and victims um, and to change the face of science um, and the way we think about this disease. So I am hopeful um, and I am uh, optimistic that these changes will, you know, will be, will be coming soon. I mean, our goal is to cure this disease by 2020. Uh, the government has said 2025. At this point, you know, I'll certainly take either. How can folks who are listening, we've got about a minute left, uh, help you join you participate in Women Against Alzheimer's? So uh, the best way to, to do that is to go to the Us Against Alzheimer's website and find Women Against Alzheimer's. Um, and to join our all of the information that we're sending out and our efforts lots of opportunities for people to get involved, um, and I would encourage anyone listening to do so. We're going to grow our network over the over the next um, year, six months to a year by a lot, and so, um, you know, there will be a lot more opportunities for people to participate and do things over the coming months. And so go to the usagainstalzheimers.org and... Uh, look for the uh, Women Against Alzheimer's link. Exactly. That sounds pretty good. I want to thank you for uh, the work that you're doing. And, uh, you know, we certainly uh, extend our best to you as you struggle both as a mom, which I gather is going great, and, and as a caregiver. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And, and thank you so much for this program because I think the kind of work you're doing um, and providing information for um, people is, is exactly what we need to be doing. So thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate you talking with us. Got to stop you right there. I'm Ron Aaron, 9.30 a.m. The answer is where we are up next. And a magical return of Carol Zerniel on Take 10, which will be, of course, pre-recorded. Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. And I'm Carol Zerniel. You know, Carol, the experts agree exercise is critical to our health and wellness, and that's especially true if you or someone you know is a senior. So in the spirit of doing what's good for us, please join us at the 2015 Run for Seniors, sponsored by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And our honorary chair this year, Bear County's newly elected District Attorney, Nico LaHood. The race kicks off at 8 a.m. Saturday, May 2nd at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex. Registration, just $25 per person if registering online through April 30th at wellmedgives.org. $30 on race day. And we have a special deal if you don't like getting up in the morning. You can be a sleepwalker for $25 registration and stay at home while still supporting our seniors. Seniors 60 and over and children 10 and under run or walk for free. All the money raised will support seniors in need. So join us at 8 a.m. Saturday, May 2nd at Wheatley Heights Sports Complex. And for registration information, go to wellmedgives.org. That's wellmedgives.org, and we'll see you at the run. Thank you so much for sticking with us on Caregiver SOS on air as we do at the end of every one of our programs. We bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known therapist, a specialist in caregiving and addictions as well, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS on air. Carol, you want to set up our Take 10? Well, you know, it's kind of a heavy topic, but we uh, recently I was visiting with my 93-year-old great-aunt, um, as well as some other older relatives. And there was a common theme. They were saying, you know, well, we shouldn't live to 100. Of course, this is somebody who's in their 90s. So, you know, nobody should live to 100. Um, and another relative said, you know, I, I should have stopped when I was back in my 70s. I, you know, I didn't want to live this long. And I think what they're communicating is, you know, it, it's hard to live in poor health. It's, it's difficult when you have ongoing chronic illnesses and you don't feel good. Um, and what the, and they were talking about a good death, which is something as Americans we're extremely uncomfortable about. Uh, but as caregivers, there's a point we have to realize, you know, all of us, I, all of us, there's only a few biblical characters that didn't die and the rest of us are going to die. Um, and when we are caring for somebody who is older and or very sick, uh, this might be a topic that they want to talk about and they may want to plan, you know, be, they, maybe they don't want to be in the hospital. Maybe they don't want to, you know, have all of the, the tests and the wires. And so, you know, I don't know, Jamie, is good death, is that, is that a difficult topic for caregivers? Well, it's a difficult topic for anybody to be frank with you. We've had such a taboo around death. I, I believe, um, differently, but then that's my spiritual path and anybody's spiritual path. We'll probably give them a, a, a different perspective, but I believe that you know it's, it's dignity. What you just said makes so much sense, Carol. I, I, the overcommunication between caregivers or family members of how dignity, if you will, plays a role in our lives. What we believe dignity is when we 
leave this world. Uh, to me, that can't be communicated enough. I think by keeping it taboo, by keeping it quiet, by not being open and honest about the beauty of life's process from birth to death, I think we're doing an extraordinarily huge disservice. So um, the right way to pass, um, I don't know about the right way to pass, but I can tell you that dignity uh, you can never go wrong with. Now, isn't that one of the underpinnings of hospice, that uh, you're creating an environment in which you can ease yourself through the last months of your life? I believe hospice is a great example, uh, Ron. I think you're spot on. I think we have a huge movement in healthcare now. I think WellMed is really taking a, a big lead in Texas and soon to be in Florida on palliative care. I believe these are ways that we can find dignity uh, through honesty. And, and, and what Carol says is the most important, which is by choice. I know we're limited in this country for moral and ethical reasons about assisted suicide, so that's not a topic or we need to go down. Other countries are entertaining it more fast and furiously. But I do believe that this is an extraordinarily important conversation to have around the table when we're healthy. Well, you know, not, we don't have to wait till we get sick. And an advanced directive can help you do that, can't it? Dead on. Spot, excuse my... Uh, yeah, yeah dead on. Bra- I did. Well, you know, one of the facts that I read recently in the New York Times was that more people die in the hospital or a nursing home than at home. And if we were to survey any of the loved ones, any of our caregivers' loved ones, um, and, and ask them where would they like to die, how many of them do you think would say a hospital or a nursing home? You know, Carol, you're, you're so right. I just... Bought a home. Hey, tell all your listeners in Texas I just bought a home here in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And somebody said to me, you know, when are you going to move from this home and go somewhere else? Because they know that that's been the story of my life. And I said, I think you're going to have to bring a shovel and an epitaph the next time because I really want to die here. Hey, have you got a water view? Yeah, actually, I, I do, but it's not on the water because of my little three-year-old. But I, I actually have a water view. And a spare bedroom? And a spirit be white. Oh, and now we now now we know where. Yeah, watch it. You you'll have house un, unwanted time. house guests. Yeah. What our listeners will know is that Ron will bring his children. I'll bring my child, and we'll be you know wonderful boomers and older adults here parenting our kids, and we'll stay there forever and ever and ever. But no, on the on the serious right. side, huh. a, aging in place is it. And last week you were talking, Carol, about the support groups and about uh, the triple A's and and long-term care, and, and I agree 100%. Uh, again, they're leading the way, and, and for us to age in place, that is about dignity. Well, over um, the holidays, they were having 24 hours of John Wayne movies, uh, and one of the movies was True Grit. And if you remember True Grit, the original one, I, I can't speak to the to the ending on the remake, but the original one, the, the little girl, the Kim Darby character, um Asked John Wayne if he will be buried next to her in her plot of land on the family farm. Um, and she says, isn't it comforting to know where you're going to spend eternity? And she, you know, she talked about it multiple times because her father had died. And she's like, here's Papa. This is where I'm going to be buried. And John Wayne, I want you to be buried next to me. And of course, he says, well, don't, you know, I'm not going to join you anytime soon. I might take you up on it, but, you know, I'm not going to join you anytime soon. Uh, and that's, you know, that really jarred me at the time, just thinking about how somebody young like that really was 
planning for him, planning for herself, and found peace and comfort. And how often, I think, in the modern society, we've lost that idea. Yes, yes, yes. And I think Ron really hit on it and what you just said, the planning and comfort. It is about planning. It's about the advanced directives. It's about the health care surrogacy. It's about how you, you would like your days at the end to be taken care of. It's about, you know, Dr. Um, Erickson basically said it clearly. Do you want to look back on your life, because it doesn't matter how much money you have or belongings, with either integrity or despair? And I truly believe that when you plan, like Ron said, advanced directives, and the family can talk about it, and they can bring it onto the table as if it's a, a topic where we're well or not well, I think then that's a good death, if you will, or at least planning for that. It's part of our vernacular, part of our lives. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air. If you've just joined us, Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel are with us. I'm Ron Aaron talking about a good death. Well, what recently uh, our palliative care department at, at WellMed has really kind of helped me refocus thinking about chronic illnesses, um, diseases that people have that are not going to get better, uh, they may get worse, um, and asking people, what is your lifestyle, what is your wish list for not necessarily the end of life, but the last years of your life. Is it pain management? Do you have a condition where you're in a lot of pain? Do you want to have more energy? There are some medications that control symptoms very well, but they zap you of your energy. So are your medications matched to the lifestyle that you want to have? What are you willing to give up to get something else? You know, Maybe they make you really sleepy. Um, so, you know... If there are choices to be made in your health care and in your lifestyle. So what is, how is it you want to live? That's such an important discussion for your physician, for your family members to know. Because if you're the older person like my great aunt, mm-hmm. you want to have that discussion. She's trying to have those discussions with us. I had a good friend, uh, Ken Weicker was his name, was a big, big heavy hitter at Clear Channel, general counsel, developed pancreatic cancer, tried everything, he was going to die. And I interviewed him on the radio about what that was like. And I asked him, well, well what is the one thing you want to do? And I figured, because he had a lot of money, uh, he'd like to go out to Hollywood, date some big movie star, and enjoy life. You know what he said the answer was, Jamie? What? He wanted to see his little girl ride her bike. Wow. Yeah. You know, I can identify with that, you know. Yeah. I've found out about my mortality right. now that I have a three-and-a-half-year-old child. Right. And he got to do that. He did get to do that. See, that's that's beautiful. But we would have never known, Ron, really. I certainly wouldn't have right. known about Ken unless you had asked him the question. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of what you're saying here is this overcommunication cannot, you know, ever be avoided. I think what we have done is a disservice. And I think what Carol brings up around palliative care and how it's going to reframe her mind and certainly reframing my mind, I, I think it's extraordinarily valid. Allowing the person to have... The choice. I mean, don't we live in America? Isn't it about freedom? Isn't it about choice? That, to me, has to be part and parcel with which Carol's calling, and, and this topic is a good death. Is anyone listening to your aunt? Oh, I think so. Good. I think so. Be- for number one, you know, she's we've always shy. listened to it. She's not shy. <laughs> yeah. She makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think that this is a topic. There's there's a resurgent mm-hmm. right now about people talking about the rights of the dying. Um, some of it's extreme. Some of it is really makes sense. 
And so I think in the United States, it, it, it is time for us to look at people's lives. They're so much longer and make those choices for a good death. Last word goes to Carol, flat out of time. Dr. Jamie Heisman, thank you. Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you so much for listening to us on Caregiver SOS On Air right here on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.